we're concluding our series uh, called Forming Faith in Your Family. We've been looking at how God designed the family and initiated the family structure. It was really the beginning of civilization, right? He put Adam and Eve, created a man and a woman, put them in a garden, gave them work to do, said tend and till the soil and populate the earth. And so the family was birthed there and God's design for human civilization involves a family. The family is the place in which God uh, uh, transmitted, right, and handed off the knowledge of him, a respect for him, a following of him. That all happened inside the family. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we're going to be today, if you want to turn there in your Bible or on your phone app, we're going to see a communication of Moses through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit giving the nation of Israel God's instructions for them as they get prepared to enter the promised land. And we're going to glean from this passage information, principles for our own lives. Because we are the people of God today. We didn't replace the nation of Israel. The church did not replace the nation of Israel. But we are the movement of God here on earth. We are his people. And so we advance and move forward uh, following him. And so we're going to focus on that today. title of today's message is Discipling Others as a Family. Tagline is doing ministry as a family. I grew up in a ministry home. My earliest memories were of my dad in training in Bible college and seminary training to become missionaries. Vocationally, my parents received that call, answered that call uh, when I was very young, before I have any memories. And so I grew up in that environment. And eventually my dad became missionary and a pastor. And so I'm one of those missionary kids, pastor's kids, you know, Uh, infamous and uh, I can tell you there's some good reason uh, for that. Some pastor's kids, missionary's kids, even maybe elder's kids, deacon's kids, whatever you call them in your church, right? Uh, some of those kids grow up maybe thinking they're a little more important than they are because their parents are in charge in the church and they kind of rubs off on them and they feel like they're pretty special. And so that can be an issue. Some of them rebel really hard for different reasons. So uh, certainly I'm aware of that. But the truth is that I felt like growing up in a ministry home was a pretty uh, special way to grow up. What I got out of it was a handing off of the idea of doing ministry as a family. That, hey, uh, my family was engaged in mission. My dad was in training uh, to be a missionary. And so I was too. And I really saw it that way. And so um, I took it, uh, that, uh, took it on that seriously. And, and uh, I soaked in everything that my parents were doing and were a part of. And, and so um, I, I was a part of that. I felt a part of it included in it. And so I want to encourage you, though you may have seen some issues with uh, kids raised in a ministry home, that for you to become a family on mission, a family engaged in ministry together, is actually a really healthy, powerful environment to disciple your kids. I'm going to try to make an argument today that there is no better way to hand off your faith to ensure that your children are raised to know and love God than to do mission, to do ministry as a family. This is a powerful way to raise your kids. It's a powerful environment for them to know about who God is and to follow him. They're going to see that, and that's what happened for me. You might say, Pastor, our family struggles to get their chores done on a daily basis, and you're asking us to engage in ministry as a family? That's kind of crazy. Like, you don't know what you're asking. It's kind of like uh, some families feel like, uh, you know, remember Winston Churchill's famous speech? 
Uh, I know it was years ago, but you probably heard it. We're talking about uh, World War II and, and fighting against uh, Hitler's Germany. He said, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields, in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. And one dad said, that sounds exactly like our family vacation." Hey, listen, uh, your family's not perfect. My family's not perfect. My kids were raised with two type A parents who are a little competitive, a little aggressive. So my kids got a little intense upbringing at times. Okay, it's true. And uh, so your family has its own dynamics. The good news is that you don't have to be a perfect family to pursue the mission of God and to disciple your kids, right? You don't have to be perfect parents to do that. You just have to be engaged in growing as a follower of Jesus. Uh, the truth is for you to, de- uh, we've been talking about in this series that to raise your kids to know and love God is really to be as a parent, a disciple maker. And, uh, and listen, uh, through this series, I know we're focused on family, but we have, uh, we have parents and children in here. We have grandparents in here. We have aunts and uncles in here. We have uh, individuals who have the opportunity to help, to influence our children through our children's ministries. So we all have a role in this, whether you're a parent or not, whether you have kids or not. Uh, we're a part of this, creating an environment where we're on mission. And, and I'm encouraging us to do that as families, but the truth is we need to do that as a church. And so uh, this is the environment in which we're raising our kids and we're discipling them. And to disciple your children means you have to be a disciple maker. And we have a four-chair vision for discipleship we've been sharing and focusing on as a church. And the first chair is where I'm a seeker. I come to check out who Jesus is, his claims. And uh, this next week's Easter, it's a great opportunity for you to invite somebody to come and check out what church is about, what Jesus is about. They're going to hear the gospel, going to hear the Easter story, the resurrection, and, and, uh, and have an opportunity to examine the claims of Jesus. That's chair one. Chair two is where I become a follower. What does it mean to become a follower? Well, it means that I understand the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus came to earth. God came and took on a body, took on flesh, the incarnation, it's called. And so Jesus came to earth, took on a body, and walked among us. He spoke to us. He interacted with us. He uh, reflected and demonstrated to us who God is and how God feels about us. He interacted with the human race out of pure love that Jesus had for his creation because he created us. And he walked ultimately to a cross where he suffered and went through the passion which we uh, remember this week. He went through the passion where he suffered. It was not an easy mission for him. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane he swept blood because of the pressure on him of the mission that God the Father was calling him to. But he did it. He engaged it. Once he made the decision to engage that mission, he walked with power because his motivation was love. And so even those trying to kill him, he said, Father, forgive them because he loved them. And so his motivation was love. No fear in love. So Jesus wasn't afraid of that mission. He encountered, engaged a, a dangerous, what would take his life, but he knew that it would result in the forgiveness of sins, right? And so Jesus went to the cross where his body was broken. His blood was spilt on the ground. And in doing so, he atoned for, the Bible says, he atoned for the sins of the world. Every human being that's ever lived, that lives presently or will ever live. 
Jesus paid for all that sin. God the Father put it on him, turned his back on him, and he, he uh, carried it, he paid for it, because he's the perfect lamb of God. And so he was able to atone for it. And so to become a follower of Jesus is to put my faith and trust in what Jesus did for me, knowing that I cannot save myself. It's not because of my good effort, good work, and good things that I would do that I can get access heaven and salvation, but it's only by grace through faith. And so I put my trust in Jesus and I become a disciple. I become a follower and I begin to pursue God. I begin to learn what it means to, to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love my neighbor as myself. And I uh, learn the, the commands of God and I begin to follow them and I experience transformation and change. And that's what it means to be in chair two, a follower. And then I hear the call of Jesus to come follow me as he said to Peter and I'll make you fishers of men. And I answer that call of Jesus which means to step into chair three where I become a worker towards the kingdom of God. Now, if I'm going to teach my children to be workers, right, to advance the mission of God, it's really what we're talking about today, is, is stepping into that chair three as a family and doing ministry together. Well, I need to have done that. I need to have grown to that point as a follower of Jesus. And certainly, chair four is where I, I'm a disciple maker and I'm able to reproduce myself in another person. And that's ultimately what parenting is all about if I'm going to raise my children to know and love God. And so can I just say to you that this seems like a tall order and it may seem overwhelming, but don't be discouraged. Once again, don't be discouraged because God is going to meet you imperfect parents, imperfect grandparents, imperfect aunts and uncles, right? God's going to meet you at your moment of weakness. And as Paul said, in my weakness, there I am, what? Strong. Because it is not you in your power that is supposed to accomplish this. It is you surrendered to God, walking in obedience to him, walking by faith, that you're able to accomplish this tall order to be a disciple maker and to engage your family in the mission of God. Um, when my kids were growing up, this idea of our family working together was something I tried to raise my kids to do and, and include them in the mission that we were after. And at times that meant taking them into some dangerous areas, right? Potentially dangerous areas. I included my kids in that. And, and listen, let me tell you that my wife and I um, have the impulse every parent does to protect our children and to keep them from danger and harm. And uh, it's kind of like the, the, one of the movies I made my kids watch growing up, which was called The Incredibles. Right? It's a, it's a cool movie about some superheroes, okay? They're called supers, and they grow up fighting crime, beating the bad guys. And then the world says, you're too dangerous. You guys cause too much trouble. So they put them into retirement. They get married, and they start having kids. And they're living a boring, mundane life, right? And then, uh, as happens, they want to protect their kids from evil, from the world. But as happens... In the world we live in, you can't hide out from evil. It's going to come and find you. And so that's what happens in the movie. The bad guys come and find them. And then they engage in the battle again. And they have to. They have to get back in shape and get back into fighting form and go after evil. And, and though they try to protect their kids and keep them out of it, their kids are pulled into it too. And so the theme of the movie, which is why I wanted my kids to see it, was family against the world. Family back-to-back -back fighting the underminer. <laughs> okay, this is a great picture 
of how we can live as families. That we can try to protect our kids from the evil of the world, and certainly many do, and we should do that. We have a responsibility to do that. But there's nothing more powerful if you want to see your kids walk through this world and not be affected by evil negatively is to teach them how to fight against evil. That they're part of the mission, right? They're part of the force that is attacking the evil in this world by bringing the work of God to it. One of the most powerful ways that you can reach your kids is to do ministry as a family. The University of Nebraska-Lincoln years ago, 19, back in the 80s, did a study on family and discovered some uh, characteristics of strong families. These character, uh, characteristics were uh, things like appreciation. Family members gave one another compliments and sincere demonstrations of approval. They tried to make the others feel appreciated and good about themselves. They had a characteristic of an ability to deal with crisis in a positive manner. They were willing to take bad situations. The growing nature of evil in the world is a bad situation. They were able to take bad situations, see something positive in it, and focus on that. In other words, the answer to the evil in the world is that Jesus has filled us and called us to bring goodness to the world. They also had a value of time together in all areas of their lives, meals, work, recreation. They structured their schedules to spend time together. You know, instead of my parents thinking that ministry would take time away from family, oh no, it brought more time to our family because we did it together. It's the way we raised our kids. We did it together. And that brings more to our family dynamic and our time together. They also, um, families had a high degree of commitment Families promoted each person's happiness and welfare, investing time and energy in each other, made family their number one priority, had good communication patterns, good communication patterns that involved spending time talking to each other, and guess what? Listening, (laughs) listening, which shows respect. And then last, a high degree of religious commitment or religious orientation, a family that has faith together, that's building faith together, and again, my, uh, uh, what I'm trying to present to you today and argue to you today is that doing ministry together as a family is the most powerful posture, the most powerful model to raise your family with an orientation towards faith, and that by doing so, you will build a strong family dynamic. It's important to make a commitment as a family, as parents, to know and love God and to raise your kids that way. Again, just a little plug, Mother's Day this year, we're having child dedication. It's not just baby dedication, but child dedication. And it really is a formal way in which to say, as a, as a family, we're, as parents, we're dedicating our children to God. And then to have the church say in response, we're going to partner with you to do that. Well, let's dig into the scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, look at some of the requirements of doing ministry as a family. First of all, the first one is this, that your family must respect God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, follow along as I read the first three verses. These are the commands, decrees, and regulations that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. You must obey them in the land you are about to enter and occupy. And you and your children and grandchildren must fear the Lord your God as long as you live. If you obey all of his decrees and commands, you will enjoy a long life. Listen closely, Israel, and be careful to obey Then all will go well with you, and you will have many children in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. 
the first dynamic that our families must have is a respect for, or the Bible calls it a fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord. Defined, I think, best by having a healthy respect for God. What he teaches, what he stands for. David McCullough, in his book, Mornings on Horseback, tells a story of a young Teddy Roosevelt. His mother, Mitty, had found him fearful of entering the Madison Square Church that they attended. In fact, he refused to go inside because there was something called the zeal in there that he was sure was going to get him. He had heard the pastor preach on it. And so his mother, Maddie, was trying to figure out what is the zeal and what is it that he's scared of. She asked him, what is the zeal? And he said, I don't know. It's a big monster, probably like a, a, a large animal, like an alligator or dragon that's going to eat me. Long, crouching in the corner, right? He was just sure of it, terrified to go in the church. And so she pulls out a concordance and looks up the word zeal and starts reading the verses to him. And she's reading through the verses. All of a sudden he says, stop, stop, that's it, mom. And it was John chapter 2, verse 17, which again in the old King James said this, and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. (laughs) Hey, listen, uh, (laughs) there's a reason to be fearful of the zeal of the Lord. That's his hot burning passion for you. He has a hot burning passion for you, a desire for you, a love for you, a jealous desire to be connected to you. Jealousy in a good way, meaning you belong to him because he created you. He does not want you to walk away into the worship and distraction of other things, the love of other things. He wants you to stay firmly focused on him. And so his zeal is to be feared for those that don't walk with him and do not know him. But those found in Christ, his zeal is comforting. It's there for us. It's what pulls us back and keeps us from going astray. Respect, as I said, another way to say it is fear. And the question is, in our homes, we've got to foster respect for God that will translate into character and attitude transformation. Do your kids respect authority? Do your kids, have they begun to uh, uh, speak in such a way, using uh, foul language, cussing a little bit, disrespectful communication? Are they learning to be respectful in their speech? Do your kids fear God? Do they have a respect for him? Do you model this fear in your life? How do you do that? Well, do you show respect for God's word in your home? Do you show respect for God in the way that you talk about others? Do you show respect for God in the way that you do your work? Do you show respect for God in the way that you treat each other? You know, spiritual maturity, it's been noted recently by some uh, pastoral leaders that our spiritual maturity is limited by our emotional maturity. It's a little discouraging in some ways, but if you think about it, it's very true. Um, There are people that spend many years in the church, many years sitting under sermons and, and, and following Jesus, but they still very quickly get wrapped up into conflict and drama with other people. If somebody pokes them in the wrong spot, all of a sudden they react. And they're emotionally drawn into conflict all the time. And we go, what's going on? Why can't we just get along? Jesus has called us to unity. But see, our ability to navigate relationships with difficult people is based on our emotional maturity. Are we able to control and lead ourselves emotionally, or are we controlled by our emotions? And so the reaction we have when somebody pokes us in the wrong spot, says the wrong thing, does something hurtful, our reaction is anger. 
Our reaction is emotional. It means we're emotionally immature. And the problem is our emotional maturity dictates whether or not we can follow the commands of Scripture to be unified and to love each other, right? And to even love our enemies. I guarantee you, if you can't love a difficult person, if they're able to get at your last nerve and cause an emotional reaction in you, you certainly are not going to be able to love an enemy who wants to destroy you. And yet Jesus says, listen, I need you to grow up. I need you to become emotionally mature and spiritually mature. And the problem is, um, and listen, I've walked through this. I'm not, I'm not standing here, in, in, I'm standing here as a failure in it many times in my life. But the truth is, if I'm sucked into the drama with my children, right? If I'm sucked into the issues, the conflict, the problems, and that drama, then I certainly am not emotionally mature enough to disciple them towards Jesus or handle or teach them even how to love people that are difficult. The church has built up a reaction to difficult people and hurtful people by saying you need to build boundaries, protect yourself. But Jesus says you need to be formed in love because perfect love has no fear. Perfect love is not poked and and reaction to difficult people, hurtful people even. Listen, our Savior went to the cross. He was hurt and damaged. He didn't try to protect himself by uh, inoculating his life from difficult people. Little hint here, you can't eliminate difficult people from your life. (laughs) You can't eradicate them from the world. I know you'd like to wave a little magic wand and make them disappear and go to that happy place that's away from you. Or hide out in your home so that you never have to deal with it. Look, you're a difficult person. You're not going to be able to get rid of them. That's not the answer. The answer is to grow up and to become mature in Christ. And to be able to handle difficult people by responding in love. Love is more powerful than anything else. And we've got to be formed in it. And so we've got to grow up. We've got to mature. A respect or fear for God will translate into character and attitude transformation. The second requirement to do ministry as a family is that your family must follow God wholeheartedly. Deuteronomy chapter 6, continuing in verse 4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road, when you are going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Wholehearted commitment. God's saying, listen, parent, listen, family, I need all of you. I need 100% of your commitment. I need you to be all in. Question, does God have 100% of your life, 100% commitment? Or are you holding some back? The reason that God says, I can't let you hold some back, is because when we hold some back, it doesn't take very long before that part of our lives takes over everything else. And all of a sudden, we're not following God. We're not committed to him. We're once again living selfishly and committed to ourselves. And so out of a love for us, he says, love me with everything you are. Go all in. I need your wholehearted, undivided attention and commitment. 
when we make that type of commitment, it, it, is, um, it is transmitted and translated to our children. Once again, perfection is not really the aim here. Uh, the expectation of us, certainly by God, is that we would grow in holiness and become like him. But if we're waiting for perfection in order to do these things, we're not going to uh, accomplish it. We'll wait forever. And so the answer is that we walk in humility and in surrender to God. And that is the place our children will see. The reason I'm a believer, I firmly believe this, is that I saw authentic relationship in my parents. They loved Jesus. They followed him. And I saw it. They were not perfect. My mom's not here, so I can say that. They're not perfect. Okay? They didn't do everything right. Um, but I saw that, and I wanted, I wanted it. You can do the same thing. Will you give God 100%? Stop holding back things. Stop protecting them, thinking that your happiness is dictated on those things and your control of them. It's actually what's stopping you from experiencing the fullness of life that God wants to give you. Third requirement to do ministry as a family is that your family must be grateful for God's provision. Deuteronomy 6, continuing in verse 10, the Lord your God will soon bring you into the land he swore to give you when he made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a land with large, prosperous cities that you did not build. The houses will be richly stocked with goods you did not produce. You will draw water from cisterns you did not dig. And you will eat from vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. When you have eaten your fill in this land, be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. You must fear the Lord your God and serve him. When you take an oath, you must use only his name. God says, listen, I'm taking you into a land of prosperity. I've brought you out of slavery and the truth is, follower of Jesus, you were enslaved to your sin. You were trapped in a path, headed towards a path of destruction and judgment. And Jesus came and rescued you and set you free. And so the answer, the question in all of this for us is, are we transmitting and sharing those stories with our children? Are we transmitting an attitude of gratitude for what God has done? Do you tell the stories, parents, of how you came to Christ? Your kids should know that. Do you share the stories of the spiritual history of your family? No matter what it looks like, do they know where you used to be and where you are now? Do they see the rescue and the, and the prosperity with which God has blessed your family so that they get to enjoy that? Some of your first-generation Christians and you grew up in a horrib, horrific situation, right? Like my mom, horrible and yet my mom provided, because of her allegiance to Christ and her commitment to him, a whole different uh, upbringing for myself and my siblings. We're blessed. We knew the story. We knew what she had come from. And most of us were grateful for the, the change in situation. How do you build gratitude into a gratitude to God into your family's DNA? One thing, uh, one practice that I grew up seeing and got, and got to be a part of was tithing. You know, on Sunday morning, I, get to, I sit with my parents in church when I was a kid. There was no children's church or children's programming. So I sat there next to them when the offering plate came around because that's what we did in our church. My dad would put some money and I saw that over time and pretty soon I wanted to do it. 
Dad, let, let me do it. I want to put the money in, right? And I got to see that gratitude, you know, that, that my parents were displaying towards God. They showed an appreciation for God's blessing to them. How about helping others? Helping others. Seeing the needs around you. It's not movie day, but another movie that, that made my kids watch growing up was a movie called Robots. It's kind of a silly uh, animated movie, another one. But the theme was really powerful. The theme was see a need, fill a need. And I wanted my kids to grow up not just thinking about their own needs, but looking to the needs of the world around them and, and do something about it. Uh, I wanted them to understand that message, helping others, showing that to your kids, living that as a lifestyle. How about giving to ministries? Giving to support missionaries and including your kids in that uh, support, that connection, that relationship. In May, we're going to focus on missions and our missionaries. And uh, taking on a missionary family, adopting them as a family, is a powerful way to teach your kids to be grateful. And then uh, lastly is to serve the poor. Giving to others. Um, Again, we're highlighting Compassion International today, and that's a way to do that. uh, To teach your kids to be generous Your kids will learn from what you do, and doing good will teach them to be grateful to God for what they have. Gratitude turns into generosity. The reason that we're selfish and we withhold is because we're not grateful. We don't understand what we have. Stories told of a beggar who was begging as Alexander the Great passed by. And the beggar uh, reached out his arms, and of course he was begging for some help. And uh, as Alexander the Great passed by, he threw the beggar some gold coins. Well, uh, one of his couriers was there, was shocked at Alexander the Great's uh, display of generosity. He said, uh, sir, you, you know, copper coins would have more than met the beggar's need for provision. And Alexander the Great said, uh, the copper coins may have met the beggar's need, but gold coins match Alexander the Great's generosity. David said, I'm not going to give God something that doesn't cost me anything because he understood what God had done for him. See, our giving is not in proportion to the need. It's in proportion to our generosity and the gratitude with which we walk through life. That's how we give. True generosity, though, is not giving of our money. So many people start to get frustrated when the pastor talks about money. That's all we want. Listen, um, no, it's not all. Uh, In fact, it's not the most important thing that you can give. The most valuable thing that you can give is what God really requires of you, which is that you love your neighbor as yourself, that you give of your time, that you give of your your presence, and you have a relationship with others, that you care for them, and that is what matters. Jesus, that's why Jesus, God, came and took on flesh and lived among us and loved us and was generous with us because uh, he understood that principle. His love for us required that he would come to be with us and your presence in the world in which you live, the connection, the time you take to have a relationship with the other person and to really show that I care about you and I love you is really where um, we have an impact. It's really what God wants from us. Fourth requirement to do ministry as a family is that your family must stay true to God must stay true to God. Let's continue reading in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 14. You must not worship any other gods of neighboring nations. For the Lord your God, who lives among you, is a jealous God. His anger will flare up against you, and he will wipe you from the face of the earth. 
You must not test the Lord your God as you did when you complained at Massa. You must diligently obey the commands of the Lord your God, all the laws and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so all will go well with you. Then you will enter and occupy the good land the Lord swore to give your ancestors. You will drive out all of the enemies living in the land, just as the Lord said you would. In the future, your children will ask, what is the meaning of these laws, decrees, and regulations that the Lord our God commanded us to obey? He says, listen, uh, you're going to have to stand a test. You're going to have to stay true to me. And this is the nature of life. We are tested. Question, how have you navigated trouble as a family? Have you stayed true to God in the face of adversity? Has your faith grown or has it gotten weaker through the troubles that you've faced? The truth is God does not bring calamity into our lives. He doesn't bring troubles to us. We live in an evil world and God is not the source of evil. And so he's not where sin came from. Uh, Sin came from us. We're the ones who rebelled. We're the ones that were selfish. We're the ones that brought evil to the world. And so many people blame God and they get upset with God and it's natural and understandable, but they're simply projecting their own character onto God. And that's not the truth. God is altogether different. He's pure and holy. And again, as I said, evil does not come from him. But he allows us to live in an evil world where we do face the effects of evil. We feel the pain of it, the sting. 2020 was a difficult year, to say it mildly, and many of us felt the oppressive nature of that year, and it seems as though 2021, uh, surprisingly, still has pain and suffering in it, and we watch and feel with our friends and neighbors as they experience suffering and loss that seems unjust and unfair and not right, and it's difficult, and we see it, it's happening, uh, continues to happen, and Jesus said in this world, you will face troubles and persecution, but be of good cheer. He said, I've overcome the world. And so we don't have to live with a fear of the pain we will face, but we need to understand something very important, and that is that God has a purpose in it. The truth is that he's promised to turn what is meant for evil in our lives to our benefit. This is the promise of God. But I need you to know something that's really, really important. It's really powerful, and we must know this and hang on to it as we go through pain and suffering. I do not know what you're going through right now. Some of you are going through testing pain and suffering right now. It's acute, and, uh, and you're not sure you can make it through. Some of you will face pain and suffering in this year. If not this year, perhaps next year. All I know is that's part of life. And so I need you to understand something really important, and that is two very important truths. One is that God loves you. He does not have your harm and damage at heart. He loves you deeply. And the second truth is that he has you firmly in his grip. The Bible says that he'll never let you go. He'll never let you slip from his fingers. That he's more than capable of holding on to you. And that is the truth. And you need to walk with those truths through whatever you have to face. And if you hold on to those and stand in those, they will get you through whatever it is that you must face. God wants to turn things for your good. Fifth requirement 
to do ministry as a family is that your family must testify to the goodness of God. The final verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6 say this. In response to your children, he says, asking why all these rules and uh, and regulations. He says, then you must tell them we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. But the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his strong hand. The Lord did miraculous signs and wonders before our eyes, dealing terrifying blows against Egypt and Pharaoh and all his people. He brought us out of Egypt so he could give us this land he had sworn to give our ancestors. And the Lord our God commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear him so he can continue to bless us and preserve our lives as he has done to this day. For we will be counted as righteous when we obey all the commands of the Lord our God that he has given us. When we testify to the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. See, we're passing on that legacy. And so we testify both as individuals within our families, in our churches, but we testify as a church and as a family unit to the world around us. And when we do, when we testify to God's goodness, then we share his greatness with the world and they're able to see that God is alive and active, and that he cares about them. With all of these requirements met as we walk in them, your family will become a powerful force for change in the world, for change towards good, which is essentially change towards God. There are many ways you can approach ministry as a family, mission as a family. One of those ways is to become a foster parent. And we have a need actually in this area, an acute need for foster families. It's my conviction that Christian families should uh, empty the foster system of all those children because not because it's an easy task, might be one of the hardest that you were ever to undertake, but because it's a powerful opportunity to extend the love of God to some children who have faced incredible pain and difficulty and been damaged. And so we have an opportunity. Maybe you remember the movie The Blind Side where um, uh, uh, I think it was Leanne Tui. The mother there, kind of a colorful character played by Sandra Bullock. Um, she was this dynamic personality that saw a young man, I believe one evening, walking along the side of the road, under, underdressed and in uh, what looked like a difficult situation to her, though she didn't know all of it. But she responded with two words to her husband as she saw the need. She said, turn around. And that resulted in their adoption, essentially, of Michael Orr and the raising of him and helping him become and fulfill his destiny. Became an NFL player, and it's a great story. If you haven't seen that movie, it's a good one. The truth is that um, her words reflect what a lot of us need to probably do, which is to stop going the direction we're going, pursuing the world we live in and the things that it says are important because we're leading our families down the wrong path. We need to stop and turn around and go the direction that God has called us to. It doesn't mean we disengage from everything in the world. We don't. We stay actively involved, but it's what we're pursuing. It's who we're pursuing. It's why we're doing the things we do. And the reason is because God called us to the Great Commission to go in all the world and make disciples. And as a family, we can do that together. And I want to call you a little bit. I know it's risky and scary and that uh, it involves uh, stepping out of what we might perceive as safety into dangerous territory. But the truth is that that's the nature of life anyway. You're not going to escape it. You can go in with a posture of offense, taking on the mission and trying to turn the world towards God, or you can go in without that posture. Either way, you're going to engage 
the world system and the danger that it holds. My prayer is for all of us that we might take that call to do ministry and mission as a family, that we'd take it to heart and we'd turn around and make sure we're moving that direction. God, thank you for your call on us and the challenges that you place before us. Uh, it's a high bar that you um, have called us to, and we understand that and are fearful of it in some ways and intimidated by it. So I just want to pray for each parent here, uh, for each grandparent, for each aunt and uncle. Father, I pray that you would give them a sense of confidence and courage in you that comes from a surrendered life to you. And Father, I pray that you might use us to do ministry together, that our families in this church would be on the offense in a forward posture, allowing you to use us to change the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.